Welcome to Soccer 101. My name is Daryl Grove, and sitting across the table from me, it's a man who always makes my podcast 11. His <laughs> name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I am honored and flattered, and I also don't believe you. <laughs> You're always in the top two as well. Oh, that, oh I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, that makes you feel better. Today, we are here to select a U.S. men's national mm-hmm. team all-time 11. We're going to go position by position, um, each selector player, and hope that we can come to some sort of agreement. Yeah, because I think we've done two versions of this in the past, one of which featured me. The Total Soccer Show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was you and me. We did the kind of draft process prior to that. I think you did one with Ryan Hines, former yeah. co-host, with uh, former co-host Josh hosting. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think you all did the draft structure there as well. Yep. What ends up happening is neither one of us ends up particularly thrilled with our starting 11. Yeah, half get, a team, basically. Exactly, like, yeah. yeah. Or if one of us ends up very happy with the lineup, almost always that means the other one is not happy. Yes. So in in order to like really talk about like our best possible U.S. national team 11, we're essentially just going to go through, we're each going to pick ours position by position, and then maybe we'll try to find common ground yes. if that seems possible at the end. And along the way, we'll get to celebrate some great players, maybe relive some great moments mm-hmm. in U.S. men's national team history. That sounds good to me, and hopefully the end goal will be that we will get our all-time U.S. 11. Not likely to be in a 3-6-1 formation, but we'll find <laughs> out. We'll see what happens. Hey, sometimes it works. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it, works. it does. Shall we start with goalkeeper? I suppose we should. A position of strength for the U.S. historically. Mm-hmm. Um, Taylor, who is your goalkeeper in your U.S. men's national team all-time 11? This is one of the only reasons why I wanted to do the draft is so I didn't have to choose between my top two <laughs> candidates, uh, who would be Tim Howard and Brad Friedel. Okay. Uh, I think mostly due to personal reasons, I'll go Tim Howard on this one. Okay. Tim Howard is going to be my all-time goalkeeper. All right, so I guess we'll briefly sort of make the case for why Tim Howard mm-hmm. is your all-time keeper. Give, yeah, we don't need like the biography of Tim Howard, no. right? But we do. I do want to know why he's your all-time 11 goalkeeper. I, I think with Tim Howard, especially Without since, using the word Algeria. That, I mean, that could be tough. Yeah, no, you uh, definitely should I'll, use the word Algeria. Then in that case, I'll use the word Belgium, probably, <laughs> to describe Tim Howard. I think it's also the case that it, like even when we did this in 2017, he was still recent enough and that 2014 performance was still recent enough that we had nothing but like positive memories of Tim Howard. Yeah. Moving to Colorado, the abductor wasn't able to distribute as much. But then there's Trinidad. I think like his, yeah, right? his reputation has gone down a little bit, I think. Yep. And I don't n- know if that's fair. It's I think the it's the opposite product. of a recency bias. Right? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think if we go back to when Tim Howard first came to my attention, it was when he moved from the Metro Stars to Manchester United and I was at that game and it was very, very exciting. Uh, and then for him to establish himself at Everton and like do some things that not a lot of Americans have done aside from goalkeepers. They all tend yeah, to do yeah. that. But really for the national team, it's about those kind of the memorable performances, the distribution against Algeria. Yeah, for those who don't know, that Donovan goal against Algeria that, you know, mm-hmm. is one of the most famous moments in American soccer, yeah. right? Um, it starts with a massive Tim Howard throw to the halfway oh, line. Yeah to Landon Donovan. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible counterattack started by Timothy Howard. Distribution is important, it turns yes. out. And then the, uh, what was he named? Like, Secretary of Defense yep. after he made, uh, I believe, 87 saves? I against was 14. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it was a lot, and it was a World Cup even, record. Even I, the real number sounds big. It does. It really <laughs> does. And so just for those moments where you kind of always knew that you had Tim Howard to rely upon, yeah. and I remember so many times, like our friend Ryan often saying, like, we don't deserve him <laughs> when there were vulnerabilities at center back and at left back. Like having Tim Howard there was always the kind of uh, like stop you needed or like yep. the kind of support you needed to make you think that the United States could get a result. And in terms of playing style, the thing mm-hmm. I've always heard about Tim Howard is that he was great at sort of 
anticipating danger and getting out there early. And mm-hmm. the reason I mention that is because the Belgium game is the best example of that. Like the attacks would essentially come in. How I remember it is the attacks coming in sort of from the diagonal and he would always be out there, make himself big and make it really, really hard for Belgian attackers before they really had a chance to, you know, pick their spot mm-hmm. or anything like that. That's how he made so many saves. Yes. So I think Tim, it's Tim Howard for me. Was it Tim Howard for you? Was he your number one goalkeeper pick? I went Brad Friedel. Okay. It was a tough decision. And honestly, I was still 50-50, but you saying Tim Howard has made me say Brad Friedel just for the balance of the show. Sure. Um, So I'm going to say Brad Friedel, not least because he also has his US men's national team moments, right? Mm. And his moment is the 2002 World Cup. I mean, certainly. There's the penalty save against Korea when we got the 1-1 draw in the group stage. There's a penalty save against Poland, but we don't win that game. So it's not remembered as fondly, right? But then there are multiple other saves in that Korea game um, that made Brad Friedel just a key part of that 2002 World Cup quarterfinal run. Huge, huge success. Um, Then there's just the... The Premier League career, yep. right? The Premier League career. So he's played for what? Uh, Liverpool, Blackburn, Villa, Spurs. Long, long time at Blackburn. Super established. Multiple like starting games in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also, I did a bit of reading into the history. He tried a lot of times to get to the Premier League and kept having work permit problems. Mm-hmm. I think it wasn't until the fourth time that he got the move to Liverpool and got the work permit approved. So he could have been there even longer. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I forget these things. And, and I do think he, he also... He started trying to get one in 92. He didn't get one in the move to Liverpool wow. until 1997. Wow. That's how he lost all his hair. That, work, that'll, work do permit stress. that'll do it. He pulled, <laughs> he pulled it out each time he couldn't get it. Yes. And it was a Homer Simpson sort of situation. <laughs> he ended up bald, but he ended up in the Premier League, and that's what counts. He certainly did. And, and he is another one that you sort of looked to as an establishing figure when it comes to Americans abroad, at least yeah. for me. Like, I know John Harkes, I believe, is the first player to play in the Premier League or first American to play in the Premier oh, League. Oh, we'll talk about him later. Okay. But, like, but it's, it's Brad Friedel, Tim Howard to some extent as well, is, like, the type of player that was just, like, there. You knew was always going to be there. You knew at least there'd be one American playing in the Premier League. <laughs> He was going to be one of those goalkeepers, and he sort of backed it up by becoming su- such a reliable goalkeeper. Yep. And it kind of cemented that idea that Americans, if nothing else, can produce very <laughs> solid goalkeepers. And then quickly in terms of playing style, you'll notice if you see Brad Friedel, the man has very long arms. He does. Like, his arms are like maybe too long. He's not small. <laughs> He's not small. They look even longer with the gloves on. He has mm-hmm. apparently an 80-inch span, which is uh, gigantic. And there's also... I read this a lot, and I saw this a lot from watching a bit of footage. Um, for a man who... Did you say 80 inches? Yeah. So... Usually, right, like if you're going with the Da Vinci model, the like like tip to tip of your fingers should be how tall you are, I believe. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's not 6'8". So that tells you he's got a little bit longer yes. reach than maybe science should allow. Exactly. So, yeah, he contravenes science. There we go. Contradicts science. There we go. Um, he also is a lot more agile than he looks. And I think it's part of like just the way his face is and the bald head. He doesn't look like someone who would have amazing reflexes and agility. But you watch footage, he's like he gets down low and he gets down there fast. He does. Right? And I think the credit for that apparently goes to him doing yoga. Everyday yoga for Brad Friedel. It's also why he managed to play so, so late into his career um, in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. The other reason is that he retired from national team duty in 2005. That helps. So in a weird way, that could be a mark against him if we're judging this on like a commitment to national team stuff. But as opposed to Tim Howard, we never saw the decline, right? Brad Friedel was still an incredible goalkeeper with like a, a decade or so still to go in his mm-hmm. career uh, when he retired from national team duty. I mean, he was never still an had, active goalkeeper for Spurs when he was, what, like 41? Yeah. So he never had a, a Tim Howard curva, curva moment mm-hmm. where he's beaten from distance and we're all like, oh no, maybe... Maybe maybe we shouldn't have stuck with him this long, right? Brad Friedel never had that moment. Mm-hmm. So that's but, why he's my nomination for all-time goalkeeper. But he is uh, like longer than he is tall, which is anti-science. <laughs> Brad Friedel doesn't like science, and therefore it should be Tim Howard. We're not going to be arguing about goalkeepers <laughs> here, right? We'll do the compromise later. That's fair. All right. All right. 
Anyone else you just missed the cut? There's one very obvious name, right? Another goalkeeper who started with hair and then slowly lost it. I'm trying to make a league. joke, but I can't. Um, I, I, I'm going to assume you're talking about Casey Keller. The yes. other one that tends to get mentioned in the like best players of all time conversation is Tony Miola. Yeah. I still do not know how good Tony Miola was. I know he was critical to that 94 team. Everybody on that team speaks very highly of him yeah. and talks about how he is a criminally underrated goalkeeper mm. because there's so many other strong contenders for that. Yeah. So, but Miola, it's because he never had the success in Europe, right? right. We can't rank him alongside Howard Friedel. And then maybe the football thing, like trying out for the Jets, it, it like it adds a little wrinkle of like we don't really know what to make of that, so <laughs> we'll go with Casey Keller. I Casey say, Keller is probably the third choice. And I, I want to briefly mention why Casey Keller at least wasn't in my top two, and I think it's because he didn't have a really successful World Cup yep. like the other two did. Right, mm-hmm. the 2006 World Cup. I mean, he was he wasn't even the best goal group in the group. Right, there was Buffon and Petr Cech in that in that same group for the US, mm-hmm. and then we went out in the group stage. So unfortunately, when Keller's moment as the number one came. It was a bad moment for the United States. Wasn't he? I may be totally wrong here, but wasn't he also the goalkeeper in 98? I believe he was one of our main goalkeepers in 1998. Ooh. Then Friedel comes in and takes over 2002, because that's where it always stuck out to me, was in the 06 World Cup. I remember thinking, you're not Brad Friedel. <laughs> you're that other guy. And I know you, and I know you're good. And I remember Casey Keller when I was 12 years old. He was the, like, there's a guy playing in Germany. Who knew yeah. that could happen? Like, I remember being very excited about that. He has a castle. But I also, I think to your point, he does have a castle. But to your point, was not that, like reliable head and shoulders above that yep. had that strong tournament that really endears him because with a lot of these players it is going to be the better the World Cup they had the more likely we are to want to it's just in the memory right it's lodged yep. in the memory yeah yep, yep, um, yep. I will say um, in terms of uh, best uh, uh, World Cup comedy tour live show performance Tony Miola wins hands down oh he certainly does yes. he was real good he re- really was right and also big personality I'm just going to throw this out there it, may, it doesn't I don't mean for this to be a humble brag, but whatever. We saw him at uh, All-Star in Orlando. Remembered who we were. That doesn't always happen. There are certain people yeah. in soccer that we have met. I've introduced myself to a certain person in U.S. soccer about ten times now. Every time. <laughs> nice to meet you. So Tony so, Miller remembers, and you know so he meets a fair amount of people. Good guy. Yes. Good guy. All right. Should we move on to – we're, we're both going to play back four, I hope. Yep. Otherwise, this will get complicated. I was, I was – okay, I'll say this. I was up in the air. Uh, I had it as like a 3-4-1-2. I sometimes had it as like a 4-3-3. But really what it comes down to is the United States doesn't – often play in a back three that was mostly to be able to put people in certain positions yeah, yeah. and I'm going to try to like honor a little bit more what I've like come to identify with the US and for the longest time it's been a back four so I'm going back four okay Are you cool if we start with right back sure alright who's your Steve right Tarantolo. back Tarantolo. get out of here you know it's Steve Tarantolo <laughs> and I know you have him too why is it Steve Tarantolo I mean 2010 World Cup is a huge part of it yeah. how c- consistent he was how reliable he was and how often we have these positions where we don't have a lot of depth and suddenly it's we have no center backs we have no left back we have no strikers there was this period where it was like who is our right back? And then suddenly it was Steve Chirondolo and only Steve Chirondolo. <laughs> and you combine that, again, with the longevity of his career, staying with Hanover, the success he had there, not in terms of like winning Bundesliga, winning Champions League, but just being a reliable competitor in the Bundesliga, keeping that sort of mantle alive, yep. and then just being a, a reliable, strong player for the United States, especially uh, in 2010, which was, it's like, it's a middling performance in my mind because there was like the England game, the ball barely goes in, it doesn't really count, but it's still the, w- or still the draw, but whatever, but Steve Chirondolo was that kind of standout performer from that tournament. He's, in, he's interesting, right? Because most, um, most right-backs that people love, it's because of their attacking yep. play, like, say, a Trent Alexander-Arnold type mm-hmm. right-back. Steve Trundle really was like, stay home, don't let anyone go past you, never lose your mark, play simple but efficient passes to other players, right? Mm-hmm. He is not an overlapping, getting crosses in, going past people kind of right-back. No. But he's definitely 
one of the only right backs we've had that are just like, yeah, he's our he's our right back. Yep. Yeah. And you back him. You back him to to defend to like to never really get beat one v one to not get torched and not be a liability or a vulnerability. Yeah. He you could count on him to like put out the fire to be the the right back that forced the other team to go to the opposite side of the field. Uh-huh. The other thing I think to mention about him is his move to Hanover. Mm-hmm. Like when I so you know I'm sort of. I came to being a U.S. soccer fan later than you because it happened after I moved here, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't know the Chirundolo origin story till I read about it. I assumed that he had some sort of German heritage or maybe he was even born in Germany, that kind of stuff. He's born in Illinois. He just at some point moves over to Hanover and is like, I'm going to make a career here. And apparently didn't speak a word of German or know the culture or anything and ends up like staying for, I think, 15 years um, and just really immersing himself into essentially Hanover culture. Don't yeah. they call him the mayor of Hanover? I believe they did. So, I don't know if they I'm still I'm assuming do, it's an honorary title. Because I, I think, think he, he can, did move into He can't like, pass laws, right? I don't think he can. But <laughs> I think he did move into management to some degree and I don't know if he's still there. So I'm not so he sure was, if he's still the mayor. He was briefly an assistant at Hanover. Then he went somewhere else mm-hmm. with the former Hanover coach. Yeah. So he's not, you know, he's not still the mayor of Hanover. Yeah, that kind of but hurts a little bit. 15 years, that's longer than most mayors last. Yeah, right. All right. So it sounds like we're on the same page when it comes to our right backs. We are, but I did have um, an alternative. And this is one of those guys that he's not primarily a right back, but he has played right back. And if we're going to get as many players in the team as possible, then maybe someone needs to play out of position. Not Frankie Haydock, hmm. John Harks. Okay. Not least because... I was wondering I, which midfielder you were going to shove into this spot. I first became aware of John Harks as a right back, right? And I first became aware of American soccer players through John Harks. So this is when he goes to uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Um, originally, he breaks into the team playing right back. Um, and in the, the run, the League Cup run, they, won, they win the League Cup that year. They beat Manchester United. Um, there's a game in the quarterfinal, I want to say, against Derby, where he plays right back and he scores from 40 yards out. And if you've seen this goal, it is an incredible goal. It, it has been a long time since I've seen that goal, but you just saying Derby, I was like, oh, yep, there I am. Yep, I got you. You now. see it? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fuzzy and grainy, yep. but like, he, so he receives the ball at right back and takes like what big I, shorts and a big jersey. What I now think of uh, and mulletish hair, of course. Um, some really like fast, aggressive strides forward, which is what I've come to associate with Harks, the player, is like just aggressive going at people but with enough skill to keep things under control you know what i'm saying it's never mm-hmm. out of control um charging forward and then just really letting one rip from 40 yards out and apparently this is a big moment in terms of earning the respect of his teammates because they have never seen an american playing soccer alongside them before so it really is a big deal if you're talking about like people earning respect in the premier league or earning respect in english football it's john harks that's doing it mm-hmm. um, and then so Sheffield wants to get promoted he plays top flight football for in, in the English top flight, first first American to do that in 91. And then when it becomes the Premier League in 92, he's the guy. He's the first American to play in the Premier League, mm-hmm. John Hark. So so why do you have him as a right back as opposed to a central midfielder? Because there are a lot of other talented central midfielders uh-huh. and there's not like a great deal of depth at right back. And then honestly, if we were – there are a lot of arguments for this can go either way, right? But if we were trying to construct the most talented possible yeah. 11, honestly, John Harks is a better footballer than Steve Girondolo. Like, he's going to give you more at right back. He'll be able to get mm-hmm. forward and get involved in the attack. So on pure talent, I think you could make a strong argument for Hawks. You're welcome to do that. Uh, but yeah, there's, I, there's the argument against, which yeah. is um, the f- mm-hmm. f- when we can sort of say it's a fact now, right? Yeah. Because Eric Ronaldo let everybody know that Hawks had the affair with Eric Ronaldo's wife, and that's why he was kicked off of the 98 World Cup team. Mm-hmm. So even though everybody like agrees he's just this incredible midfielder who can play right back, there is that mark against him, right? When you're talking about all-time US 11, you can't not consider the fact that that happened. Captain for life. Yeah, exactly. Captain yeah. for life. So if anyone doesn't know that story, he was uh, named Captain yep. for life 
and then it came out that this was going on. So Captain for Life was no longer captain and no longer invited to the World Cup. And that was his autobiography, was like Captain for Life and other temporary yeah, assignments. Yeah, in which he doesn't mention the real Interesting reason that he, doesn't why mention that. he yeah. was left off the mm-hmm. 98 World Cup team. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, and I, I do agree with you, though, that like John Harks, I have this idea of him as a less tattooed, less Irish accented uh, Mickey from Snatch, the Brad Pitt <laughs> character. Just that like he's, he's kind of skinny, he's got the kind of long legs, but simultaneously you have that idea that if you go into a 50-50 challenge with him, he is going to be, to use the description of Mickey from that movie, harder than a coffin nail. Yes. And I just, you, you back him to kind of win that challenge, maybe leave the imprint of a stud, but not quite enough to get that red card, but enough to make you remember it the next time you go into a challenge. <laughs> All right, so our nominations for right mm-hmm. back are Steve Gerundolo and John Harks. Mm-hmm. Um, should we go to left back? Sure. Um, <laughs> Not the U.S. It's the opposite of goalkeeper right. for the United States. I, in doing my research for this, I read a Brian Sharetta story uh, for Howler magazine called The Black Hole at Left Back, yep. which has been just throughout U.S. history. It's just been a make-do, 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 like mm-hmm. who can play left back kind of situation. We never had a Steve Chirundolo. We didn't. But you know what we did have? What did we have? A Demarcus Beasley. Demarcus Beasley, great shout. That is my answer. Okay. Uh, and and this this was the only reason, or the primary reason, why I had us in a back three when I was initially going to do my draft, because I wanted Demarcus Beasley to be my left wing back, because when you think of Demarcus Beasley... Because it represents half of his career at left wing and half exactly. of his career at left back. Exactly. Yeah. Because some of his performances <laughs> at left wing at club level... Like his average heat map would be left wing back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, that's how it, it rounds out. It, <laughs> totally. Uh, because at club level, a, a very capable of attacker playing in a number of different leagues, PSV mm-hmm. probably being like his shining, like or his like kind of peak. I would argue yeah, that Champions what, League semifinal exactly. two thousand five, and, and an integral. No member, American has gone that far. No, again. and he was an integral member of that team in making it to that Champions League semifinal. And I would argue that you can see that reflected in his game when he is a more attacking player. The USA's goal against Ghana in two thousand six, uh, which Clint Dempsey scores, but the ball in from the left channel from Demarcus Beasley, it is the ball that I feel like we don't see enough <gasps> now. Is it, is it a bending ball? like around the back of the defense but into the path of the striker and first time oh, or yes. maybe it's second touch maybe he sets it up and then plays it I think it might be he's played in he lets it go past and then he catches up and does that kind of bending ball mm-hmm. but it's that it's what I've talked about a lot recently is that just because you get the ball at your feet and dribble as fast as you can doesn't mean you're playing quickly running fast is not playing quickly <laughs> making that decision and playing a perfectly bending ball in yeah. that leads to a goal first time and like very quickly deciding on that play is the mark of a true like consummate professional that DeMarcus Beasley could do that incredible then that he can sort of transition into being this left back who makes that position his own becomes this reliable player probably would have gone to the World Cup if the United States had qualified in 2018 and probably would have started at left back I feel like there's a decent <laughs> chance in saying if Bruce Arena is in charge so I just think like for everything that he was able to do in an incredibly long career and an incredibly accomplished career and yet still seem to be the most like friendly and approachable person in the U.S. pool. Yeah, yeah. All of those reasons make me love DeMarcus Beasley. And there might be people listening thinking, I don't know about this because maybe they came late mm-hmm. to the U.S. and they're thinking about like uh, – Demarcus Beasley left back and we had our concerns going into 2014 World Cup yeah. about Demarcus playing left back and he was brilliant he in was. the end he was like really solid no one no one really like embarrassed him for pace or anything like that and it was because he had lost a lot of pace by that point right it wasn't super slow but if you so I went I went and watched some 2002 World Cup footage when a young Demarcus Beasley mm-hmm. is playing left wing he was rapido so the fact that he's transitioned from this like pacey attacking winger in 2002 to still pretty quick but like technique to pick out passes like in 2006 and then by the time we get to 2014 Mm -hmm. um, he's still able to contribute to the national team just using his sort of nous 
using using his grey matter to be able to and his experience to be able to play left back. That is a US national team career right there. But in everything you've just said, you've just made me realize I might actually blame Demarcus Beasley for the current state of the US national team. Why is that? All right, because. In the tournaments we're talking about, 2002, 2006, he is more than capable or proves himself more than capable of like doing what's asked of him. Do you need him to be an attacker who can play wide? Do you need him to be a, a person who can dribble and go at 1v1 defenders? He can kind of do it all. Then he switches into being a left back. He can do that too. He's able to execute what's asked of him because I think he has such an established background. And you know who he's playing with at that point, Daryl Grove, for the yeah. national team? Greg Berhalter. And I think Greg Berhalter sees Marcus Beasley and says, everybody should be able to do that. <laughs> so if all my players can play like him, then we'll have a perfect system and everybody can interchange and overlap and we'll be fine. Hey, Taylor, this, this podcast, bear in mind, is timeless. When uh-huh. people listen to this, Greg Berhalter could be winning the 2022 World well, Cup. Well, in that case, we'll have to do an update. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, my choice for left back, yeah. weirdly, was Paul Caligiuri. Okay. And it's part of that whole thing of, okay, we don't really have a left back, but someone has to play there. Paul Caligiuri played left back at the 1994 World Cup. Um, he was naturally right-footed, worked really hard to become a kind of mm-hmm. two-footed player. And then there's obviously the moment, the uh, 1990 World Cup qualifying moment, away to Trinidad, where Paul Caligiuri strikes that ball, um, square to him by Tabramas, and sends the US to the World Cup. Mm-hmm. The shot heard around the world, um, as they called it. How recently have you seen this goal? Probably not since we either did this in 2017 or when we saw him speak uh, in Philadelphia. I think I went oh, back he's and watched for it president. there. Yeah. So he, um, he really, one, he hits this left-footed. Mm-hmm. which is interesting because he's a right-footed player. Um, two, he, he hits it on the bounce, but it's almost like he's let it bounce too high. And then when he hits it, you think, oh, that ball is leaving the port of Spain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably going to land on a boat somewhere. And then it just dips viciously. It's a really sort of enjoyably weird goal. And just the importance of it to US soccer, it kicks off the, uh, the thing of the US qualifying for the World Cup, right? From 1990 to 2014, uh, we qualified for the World Cup. That was the first time we qualified since, what, 1950? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Paul Caligiuri for filling in at left back competently in the 1994 World Cup and for hitting the shot heard around the world that gets the U.S. to the World Cup in 1994. It is telling, though, that in discussing the reasons why you have him as your left back in the all-time best U.S. 11, you've said, for filling in capably at left back, which is kind of the case for DeMarcus well, honestly, Beasley as well. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> it's it's not a strong position. To Brian Schreier's story, yeah. the black hole at left back. We, yeah. just, we just can't seem to get a Steve Girondolo-type figure um, to play left back. Uh, anyone that sort of missed the cut for you? Anyone that you considered even? Yeah, uh, if you had taken uh, Demarcus Beasley, if we had done the draft, I probably would have ended up going with Carlos Bocanegra, who started as a left back for the United States, transitions into being a left center back for the U.S., and is the captain, I believe, as a center back as opposed to a left back. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just enjoyed Carlos Bocanegra being involved in the national team. Yeah. Uh, he was never a player that I thought of as being particularly like remarkable. I never had the same feelings as I did about Chirondolo, that like, oh, Bocanegra is just going to shut it down. Yeah. But I just think of him as being consistent and being the kind of consistent captain that the United States needed and looked to in those moments so that he could also play left back is why I had him in there. But it didn't feel right to say like, and he could be a left back, so why not? Versus Demarcus <laughs> Beasley at least made that position a bit That's more true. his own when he played. Because it. it's not like, because by that time he was also playing left back in Major League Soccer, right? right? So he really did become a left back, mm-hmm. which I think is maybe the best case for him. Yep. One of the guys that I genuinely considered, but like there were just more compelling cases for the people, Frankie Haydick. <laughs> 
did the job in mm-hmm. 2002 oh, I had and him there did too, it yeah. absolutely yeah. admirably. I had him left and right. And I had him. I heard him uh, – sorry, I read a quote where he basically said, um, yeah, Bruce knew if he just put me in there, I was going to just – I'm not going to be the most talented guy, mm-hmm. but I'm going to make it hard for Figo or whoever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and even uh, in the American Fiasco, the podcast series – Story of the 98 World Cup? Yeah, like, yeah. like Frankie Haydock was the only person who I think spoke consistently positively about Steve Sampson because it was yeah. basically just like, yeah, you had to be really, really fit and run a lot, and that was my entire game, so I loved it, and that is Frankie Haydock. He is like – the representation of the energy yes. and hard work that people come, came to identify from the national team. And then I think the long hair. It's, it's like simultaneously he's like a surfer who works really hard. And I think that <laughs> appealed to a lot of people in this country. Are right, you going to do centre-backs as a pair? Sure. You can uh, na- name a pair of centre-backs that you want for the U.S. This is, this is slightly challenging because hard, right? there are lots of different options you could go with for lots of different reasons. I'm just going to go with, like, the heart over maybe the head. Eddie Pope is number one because it's Eddie Pope, and that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Alexi Lalas is number two for me. We did the same thing. There we go. We did the exact mm-hmm. same thing. Okay, so let's talk about why. Sure. Why Eddie – let's go Eddie Pope first of all because, again, if you were more recent uh, – mm-hmm. obviously, you'll know Lalas from TV. But if you were a more recent U.S. fan or soccer fan, you might not know that much about Eddie Pope. You might not. I haven't really thought about this ranking. I would certainly put him in the top ten U.S. players ever. Uh, I right. might put him even – Closer to the top five? I don't know if I'd throw him in there quite yet, but he's maybe in there. So the hard thing is he never played in Europe, right? right? But everybody who played with him or Mm -hmm. saw him play basically agreed he absolutely could have played in Europe. Like It's not even a question of whether he would have been any good or not. Mm -mm. But then we don't actually have the evidence of him going and doing it. We just have the evidence of him playing for DC United and playing very successfully for the US men's national team. Yeah, and you look at that DC United team that he's part of, the one that wins like the first two, and then they win four of the first five. Uh, that back line also features Carlos Yamosa and Tony Santa, very involved in the 2002 World Cup, mm-hmm. all three of them. So I think that is a key part of why we remember him so fondly is because he was the spine of DC United or the defensive like spine and then also became that key defender for that 2000. 2002 team that we yep. remember so well. 2006, we don't need to talk about. That. But <laughs> Eddie Pope in, in that 2002 team, because he wins everything in the air, but is so calm and competent with the ball at his feet and can find the passes, can make the smart long ball it's plays. He's just a bit of everything, yeah. right? He can mm-hmm. do a bit of everything. I also I find a lot of footage of him just standing people up. Like people would run yep. at him and he would stand them up and not dive into a tackle. He would just have all the angles covered mm-hmm. until eventually he would get a poke tackle. Or if they try to go past him and they have more pace, he, I've seen him go to ground a few times and come up with the ball. Yeah. You know what I mean? So he was just a guy that I always trusted one versus one defending. My money was always on the Pope. Yeah, and it should have been. <laughs> I had a religious conversion. Uh, and then he gets, I think he gets, he gets two yellow cards against Italy in 2006, so he's suspended. Uh, and that is like the end of his World Cup run. So I think that's the other element that we kind of like have this negative impression of him in Italy. But I would argue that if he weren't suspended, I think maybe the United States have an even more successful 2006. World Cup because he is such a key figure for them even yeah, four years later. That makes sense. The other thing I had in my notes about Eddie Pope is like for all his defensive capabilities, he also came up with quite a few goals. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of just reading out stats, but eight goals in 82 games for the US, that's not bad at all Mm-mm. for a centre back. And I watched a lot of goals for him for DC United and for the US national team. And I think his goal scoring is about reading space yep. so the same skills that made him such a great dis- defender like reading what was going to happen and intervening essentially made him really good at finding space in the box because he's a centre back but he's not like a towering Omar Gonzalez six foot four centre back Mm-mm. right so it's not like he was towering over everybody and winning headers he's that not day. short but yes I he's like he's six part. one I think okay. yeah, but it's more about him reading where to be and being in the right place at the right time yes. even important goals in club soccer MLS Cup 1996 
he scores the goal in extra time. Yes, he does. And and like that is a great example of what you're talking about. We talked uh, like like when we were talking earlier in the week uh, for this week when we're recording. It's not time sensitive. Don't worry. But it's like the the way that Cristiano Ronaldo is able to like spot the space where that ball is going to be and attack that space, even if he's not within 15 yards of it when the ball is crossed, he can kind of read it and know. Yeah. That's what I equate with Eddie Pope of that sort of he's not just going to like shove people away and then win the header. It's that he meets it and could knock people out of the way, but also kind of doesn't need to. Like yeah, it's yeah. 10% being able to physically knock people out, 90% reading it and knowing where to be and be on the end of it to score that crucial goal. All right, so we agree. Eddie Pope, mm-hmm. the Ronaldo of defenders. Yes. Um, so we've both partnered him with Alexi Lalas. Mm-hmm. I want to give my reasoning for this. Sure. Um, the, all the games I went back and watched, Alexi Lalas wins everything he does. in the air. And weirdly, the thing I was really impressed by is his headers distance yep. when he headed a ball it stayed headed mm-hmm. it went far away and it stayed headed um and the thing i really liked watching again especially the 94 team was the partnership with balboa right so lalas would be the go win it kind of mm-hmm. guy and balboa would be more like the read space um but then like be basically more comfortable on the ball he was better on the ball than lalas was balboa and i thought about going for that partnership but then i thought what if i could just replace balboa with eddie pope and then have the sort of the best of Eddie Pope mm-hmm. and the best of the Lalas Balboa partnership. So that was my that was my reasoning. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, for me, it's like it's just it's also what Lalas represents f- both for that '94 team and like the the yeah. iconic images of yeah. that World Cup, and then what he did after that, going and playing for Padova, going to play in, mm-hmm. in Serie A. I think the first modern American to go play in Serie A. I yeah. don't know if there was successfully, one like the 40s. from what I understand as well. Right, yes. he went and headed things away there as well. He did indeed. He did <laughs> indeed. Uh, and 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 then just like as a ten year old, remember the ninety four World Cup, remembering who he was, and like he was kind of like had that image in my head. And then going back years later, as we were doing this show and talking more about the national team and looking at him play in that ninety four World Cup, and you see him. Yes, he can win those balls in the air, but like some of the combination play the United States was capable of in '94, I think we're not necessarily capable of right now in 2019. So, and I think he like he could play the ball out of the back. He could play it simple. He could do some quick combinations. He made good decisions for the most part. Had a few reckless moments here and there, <laughs> uh, and then famously uh, got punched in the nards when playing Mexico. And that is in the beginning of basketball. So you can watch that part too. <laughs> I mean, once you get in basketball, you've made it. That's right? it. So I would say the '94 World Cup as well. I was watching that with no idea that one day I would live in the United States and support the U.S. men's national team, right? Mm-hmm. Lalas was one of the figures of the 94 World Cup that everybody knew, yep. right? I really took notice mm-hmm. of him. And I think partly he knew how to make an impression and market both himself and American soccer yeah. with the big red hair and the big red beard. Every, and those, I mean, those jerseys, right? Mm-hmm. The Stars and Stripes jerseys. Um, everybody just remembers the image of Lalas from that World Cup. Yes. Yeah. All right. So any any... Uh, defenders that missed out like you mentioned Bocanegra did he come close to cracking this top two uh, no the only other ones I had were Marcelo Baboa who you yeah. already mentioned and maybe Thomas Dooley as a center back mm. uh, that's where you had him I believe you picked him when we did this last time around in the draft uh, so I thought you might do that one again <laughs> uh, including Thomas Dooley I, I don't know if you have him later on but he was my other potential candidate yep. if I couldn't get either of my first two choices there's an argument for Jay Demerit just because of the story but if mm. we're honest about it these other guys are probably better defenders than yes. Jay Demerit right? yes I think so um, I think okay. so Before we move on to the midfield, Mm -hmm. today's Soccer 101 is sponsored by 
ExpressVPN. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a supporter of the Red Devils, the Blues, the Citizens, the Hammers, the Gunners, the easiest place to watch uh, the Premier League is with ExpressVPN. And I would say that's because ExpressVPN allows us to watch Match of the Day, which yes. is a very useful feature if you are trying to watch condensed highlights that give you an accurate representation of what actually happened in the game. So what VPN does, if you don't know what a VPN is, um, it gives you privacy and security when you go online, but it also allows you to um, essentially mask your IP or say that your IP mm-hmm. is in a different country, which gives you access to things like uh, BBC mm-hmm. and Match of the Day, which is um, theoretically only available in the UK. Yeah. And I will say other VPNs don't know how to work with the BBC because the BBC will try and stop this. ExpressVPN work, work around the BBC. Work around, yeah. yeah. Um, ExpressVPN stays one step ahead of the BBC. It certainly does. <laughs> and it stays one step ahead regardless of where you're using it because uh, it has apps for computers, uh, mobile and digital media players, uh, even Fire TV. So you can sort of use it in a variety of different ways in a variety of different locations depending on what your lifestyle allows for. It gives you um, all kinds of... Um, opportunities to watch soccer that maybe you wouldn't mm-hmm. have had before. One that they suggest is you could set your location as Taiwan mm-hmm. and then you could get an 11 sports account, which is watched a couple dollars uh, uh, a month to to have access to all the Premier League action. So you can try ExpressVPN uh, for, what, $9 a month, uh, I believe it is? Less than, uh, just under. Less yeah. than. comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at ExpressVPN.com slash soccer that's express e-x-p-r-e-s-s-v-p-n dot com slash soccer for three months free with a one-year package one more time that's expressvpn.com slash soccer to learn mm-hmm. more thank you to expressvpn for sponsoring today's show indeed 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 all right we've got uh, the defense down the goalkeeper down we're half an hour in it's time to talk midfield Okay, what sort of shape are we going to go with? How, how do you see your midfield setting up, Taylor? Well, I would have liked to have like a midfield destroyer, and that is a position I wanted. I feel like the logical candidate there is like maybe a Kyle Beckerman, and I don't know. I love Kyle Beckerman. I don't know if I want to put him in my all-time best US 11. That's fair. So I've just sort of gone with a more like rotational, like we've got two guys who could maybe be defensive if we need <laughs> them to. It's going to be a more attacking US team for sure. So I've got essentially a six and two tens. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we'll just do this between us, like maybe one midfielder each at a time, and All then right. we'll, uh, we'll compromise later at the end of the show when we try and figure it out. I'd like to know who you've gone with for your six. Um, you, do you want to hear about it? Sure. It's Thomas Dooley. Okay. Yeah. So not really a destroyer kind of six, mm-hmm. more of a control the game distributor kind of six. I mean, the man could tackle, right? But he's not out there just to knock people over. Mm-hmm. He is out there to be in charge of the game, be a communicator, be a leader. And one of the reasons I wanted, I think you're noticing probably my 11 is slightly emotional as much as like um, a tactical or a technical team. He's the original German-American. <laughs> he's the original German-American. Didn't become a US citizen until uh, just before, I think a couple of years before the 94 World Cup. He was 31 yes, he was. when he made his debut for the US. Apparently, didn't speak very good English. Like I read a quote that he, um, he was in a gift shop somewhere and was struggling to buy postage stamps. <laughs> but very, very quickly, the man learns English. Why and would becomes, you go to a gift shop to buy postage stamps? Right there, the, that tells you. That it tells was you the 90s. What, why would you go to the post oh, office? Oh, I see. what I'm saying. <laughs> like, come on, Thomas. He didn't know how to ask. He didn't know how to ask for directions to the post office. That's what it is. Um, so, but very quickly, he learns enough English to be a leader and communicator, which is obviously really important. You need to speak English to be a communicator um, on the field. Uh, and what even moves to MLS later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, you know, he's got this like really uh, high profile, highest profile Bundesliga player, the very first German American, which is definitely something we've benefited from um, in the years since. All right, well, there's my I, case for Thomas Dooley. I have not gone with the destroyer number six. In the end, I've gone with a midfield that maybe 
could easily be overrun, but I'm okay with it because we're going to try to play possession and play through all, right. all that pressure. So I'm going to start with John O'Brien, uh, who okay. will forever be uh, in my heart because of 2002 and yep. pretty much that alone. I mean, there's not much else to That'll choose from it. for the US yeah. national team. I've talked about him before, but he's a player who, like, going back to that 2002 World Cup, prior to that, we knew, like, MLS players, we knew there were some guys in Europe who were doing okay, but to have a player who suddenly, but, like, a lot of the times with, like, World Cups, you'd get people on the roster, he'd be like, wait, who's this now? Like, I don't know about this person at all. Maybe some folks did, I did not, but John O'Brien was one of those that suddenly we had this midfielder playing at Ajax, who were a club that I knew and had heard about, and was like, wait, what? How, How did that happen? And that he came in and really backed up that reputation such as it was in my mind with consistent performances and ran that midfield and scored goals and was a a pivotal figure in that quarterfinal run I I think for all those reasons regardless of the longevity of his career or lack thereof John O'Brien will forever be one of my preferred midfielders and it really is all about 2002 but there's a strong argument that that's enough Mm because 2002 was amazing all the way to the quarterfinals the win over Portugal in the first game Um, in terms of his style I think John O'Brien is a great fit for whatever we're doing with that midfield because he could kind of do a bit of everything right he could could defend and he also I'm guessing because of his Ajax education he seemed like a guy who could pass and move like mm-hmm. understood the space and knew like like just was on top of all that everything that was happening yep yeah so John O'Brien is a really really good shout all right um next for me I'm gonna go it's a player I always try and pick when we do one of these all-time 11s Tab Ramos okay uh, I have Tab Ramos as my number 10 as my as your number mm-hmm. 10 I've got kind of like a two tens system sure. so yeah uh Tab Ramos He's always talked about as like the creative player from the 90s teams, right? Like he was the guy that they would look to to be technical. Like he's the guy that could, you know, do a bit of soul mm-hmm. role. He, played, he even played futsal for a little bit. Uh, so Tab Ramos is the guy that brings some technical skill to the midfield, but also some strikes from distance. So you always need a player that can hit a shot from distance. There is a really important goal in um, 98 World Cup qualifying. It's actually 1997. Mm-hmm. It's against Costa Rica. Uh, the U.S. wins 1-0 with a Tab Ramos absolute beautiful sort of... I don't want to call it a, a torpedo because torpedoes go in a straight line. It's like a bendy torpedo <laughs> that he hits from the top of the box and puts it right in like the lower right corner side netting kind of strike. All right. I, I mean, it's it's... It's like, first of all, you can get the longevity from him and balance it out with John O'Brien because he played in three World <laughs> Cups, so that certainly helps. Uh, but it, it is like the playmaking ability of Tab Ramos. If you go look at some of his highlights from his Major League Soccer days, mm-hmm. he would fit fine today. I think like an informed Tab Ramos, a like peak of his powers Tab Ramos, if you put him in modern Major League Soccer, I think he would thrive. Because yep. you can see his vision, his passing ability, it's all on display, uh, almost to the point where like he has to really set it up for some of his teammates <laughs> to make it happen uh and then he sets up the Paul Caligiuri goal the shot heard around mm-hmm. the world is the assist from Ty Ramos and he sets up Ernie Stewart for the goal against Colombia uh the goal the United States actually scored in 1994 and that in of itself is an amazing ball because it's from like 30 yards out and it's kind of bending but chipped into the path of Ernie Stewart it's perfectly positioned for him to be able yep. to take it down and then shoot very quickly I think it might be end up being his first touch he puts it uh on goal but just sort of that ability to provide against uh world-class opposition makes me think that he could do it uh for the United States whenever needed so I have to, I'd have <laughs> Tab Ramos in there, and he is one who I don't think I had previously. I, I would not have drafted him the last time we did this, yeah. and it's been more so maybe because he's been more in our eye from being like a youth national team coach, and then more recently taking over at Houston as of time of recording. I think like he kind of stays in my head, and then the more you hear about him, the more you go back, and the more familiar you are with him, and the more yep. you hear people talk about what he did for the team, the more he stands out.
out for me in that regard. And there's one really unfortunate thing where he gets that elbow from Leonardo yep. in the 94 World Cup that mm-hmm. fractures his skull. Um, he misses the entire... 94-95 season. Yep. He was with Real Betis mm-hmm. in Spain at the time. Having he, just been promoted, right? They'd just been promoted. He would have been playing in La Liga, mm-hmm. like the top division La Liga, but he missed the entire season with the fractured skull. So it's, it's kind of really unfair that we can't talk about him as the American that like played in La Liga because he was robbed of that by the fractured skull. One of the things I enjoy with the 101 And stuff, then he comes back to MLS. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. One of the things I really like with this, though, is like it provides you opportunities to look at historical what-ifs and what might have been. And that is one for me, that if Tab Ramos goes in in La Liga, becomes a, a pivotal figure, and as we said, like is a number 10, is a creative playmaker, could play wide, but like is going to be involved in creating goal-scoring chances. If he did really well, and like, maybe even if, like, uh, like if he ended up having to jump ship to a different team, but he works his way up... We've talked previously about like why aren't there more Americans playing in La Liga, yeah, and yeah. if he establishes the possibility, he could be like the John Harks of Spain. Yeah, like it, it's it's a possibility, and I and I do and then wonder more, more American players now would be going mm-hmm. to La Liga. Yeah, because like Altador went there and didn't do well for yep. Villarreal. So yeah, there's never that breakthrough player. Mm-hmm. It could have been Tab it Ramos. Could have been. He really was that good. People go back and take a look. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I also had Tab Ramos, and then my other midfielder was Claudio Reyna. All right. It has to be Claudio Reyna, Captain America. Claudio right. Reyna, another one who we sort of remember less fondly because of what happened in 2006 but prior to that was just I would say the best technical American player even with John O'Brien in that team even with everybody else that we've still yet to talk about from 2002 Claudio Reyna pulled the strings seemed capable of uh, like being one of the best players in that tournament so much so that I think he was the first American ever named to a, a World Cup best 11 and backed it up with that performance uh, the like the dribble down the line against I believe it was Mexico that oh, leads yeah, yeah. to the first goal like his he rides a challenge he holds off Mexican players but then he's able to play like a perfect ball in uh, I just enjoy every aspect of what Claudio Reyna brings and that's why I have him as my other central midfielder I also I really uh, I listed him because we just talked about like Ramos in Spain and all that mm. Reyna to me is the first American to have a proper high-profile European career. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you can say, oh, Harks played for Sheffield Wednesday and Derby, but it's only a couple of years here and there, and then he came back. Claudio Reyna played for Leverkusen, mm-hmm. Wolfsburg, Rangers, Sunderland, Manchester City, didn't come to MLS until, like, I want to say 2007-ish to play for Bruce Arena, mm-hmm. right? Because Bruce Arena would just sign him, no matter how old Reyna was. Yeah. Bruce Arena would always sign him and play him. That was maybe the mistake of the 2006 World Cup, right? Is maybe. That Arena just had too much faith in him. But those... Those five European teams he played for. Wait, where did Bruce Arena sign him? Um, at New York Red Bulls. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think I think he'd originally played with him at UVA. Maybe it just goes back a long way. I did, I forgot Bruce Arena managed New York Red Bulls. Yeah, it was brief. Okay. It, All it, right. It wasn't great. It wasn't a great time. I imagine not. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, yeah, high profile European career, all that, you know, big, big clubs. Uh, that's that's part of the Claudio Reyna legacy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it is worth noting, it's not the Man City that we know today, but it's still a Man City like like that brought Claudio Reyna in and he became a key performer for yeah, them. Yeah. So too, was he a key performer with all the other teams you mentioned? And I think that's the other reason why he probably stands out so fondly is because he's another one who went abroad at a time when that wasn't a guaranteed thing mm-hmm. and backed it up. So Claudio Reyna for me, for sure. So my, my third player was mm-hmm. going to be between Reyna and Hugo Perez. Okay. Um, so Hugo Perez, I think, is underrated as a national team player because he never had a big World Cup moment. He was injured for the 1990 World Cup. And I think he only played one game at the 94 World Cup. I think he played against Brazil in the round of 16. But he was coming towards the end of his career in 1994. But you can go back and find all this footage of like... Uh, so he played from 84 to 94. Um, 
little bits of the 86 World Cup qualifying campaign that ultimately was unsuccessful. The 1990 World Cup qualifying campaign, Hugo Perez was um, a part of it. Mm-hmm. When you see Hugo Perez, there is no other US player like him. He is like one of those, those classic South of course South America even though he's like originally um, his heritage is from El Salvador mm-hmm. number 10 where it's always like almost teasing and taunting the opposition like drag backs drag backs flick it over your head like turning this way and that way like for all the, the skills of Ramos and the, the great technique of Claudio Reyna they're not that like um, showboaty kind of player mm-hmm. right that Hugo Perez was so I'm, I would strongly like to get him in a team just to have one of those almost fantasy players that's oh, why right. I get Hugo Perez in an all-time US men's national team so who are you choosing then because there's a few actually there's a few who is your right back uh, John Harks okay so you've yeah. got John Harks and then Caligiuri is your left back yeah and then are you going to go Hugo Perez yeah I'm going Thomas Dooley uh, Tab Ramos Hugo Perez okay yeah that's, that's my three-man midfield Interesting. Yep. Interesting. And I just want to say one big important moment for Hugo Perez. Um, in the 1990 World Cup qualifying campaign, he scores against El Salvador. I think it's a way to El Salvador, which is where his heritage is from. He scores for the US, wins 1-0, which is a big part. We needed those points, mm-hmm. put it that way. So he, he's a big part of getting us the 1990 World Cup. But we have no memory of him there because he's injured and can't go and play in the 90 World Cup. And also we have no memory of the 90 World Cup. Also that. <laughs> I mean, Pretty much. I watched it. And there's footage. You, you remember a lot of the US team from 1990? In your initial viewing? I mean, I remember them losing 5-1 and Thomas Carabi destroying them. <laughs> well, like, actually, genuine question, though. Like, do you have, like, memories from before you lived here, before you actually cared about the U.S.? Yeah, 94 World Cup. Because okay. the U.S., like, That's, was the host team and sense. was the surprise team and Lalas with the beard and But not from 90, though. Not really. No, okay. I remember them losing and being like, oh, they're not very good. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, a couple other midfield options I would have gone for if maybe my options were limited. It seems like I would have been able to get pretty much everybody I wanted. Uh, Did you not mention John Harks because I'd already mentioned him at right back, or would he have been cracking your midfield? He was, he was in my backups. He, okay. was, he was basically my backup to Reyna. Uh, and then I had uh, Michael Bradley potentially backing up John O'Brien. I gave Bradley some thought, mm-hmm. especially like 2008 to 2014. Bradley, MB90, we used to call him. Yep. He would just roam around the field. We used to call him the apex predator, right? He would we just did. like win everything everywhere. I mean, that version of Michael Bradley has a strong shout for U.S. men's national team all-time 11. I mean, go back and watch the, the equalizer he gets against Slovenia in 2010 when he, he just he knows where the ball's going to be, but he runs through defenders to get to it yeah. and does the, like, lunging, just gets a toe past the goalkeeper to put it in. Mm-hmm. Like, that work rate and that ability to get on the end of the ball was something that I think we didn't necessarily have in, in spades in yep. 2010. And then, like, obviously, everyone's upset that he came back to Major League Soccer, yep. but you got to remember, this is a guy that succeeded in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. in Germany, and in Serie A in mm-hmm. Italy. That, he had a European career, he an did. impressive one. Certainly, yeah, yeah certainly. Uh, so I had Michael Bradley uh, potentially in there. Jermaine Jones was a, was a potential nominee in there. And then the other kind of what if I have, I, this is more sentimental and what could have been would be Stu Holden, is a player mm. that I think we could have seen play uh, big minutes for the United States. Injuries made that not happen. Uh, but Stu Holden, I think, could have been that next level central midfielder or another one of those big midfielders for us, even if he wasn't necessarily big himself. Maybe a future show, though, what might have been mm-hmm. US 11. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. And I wouldn't hate that idea either. I mean, uh, John O'Brien might make both teams. He might could. He might could. <laughs> uh, so then we have our sort of attacking line, which yeah. I feel weird having a front three because I'm not sure if this is what I would want to do. But it, it's I'm okay with it, I guess. I'm okay with it. Sure. 
Should we start with right winger then? Since sure. we started with right back, mm-hmm. who is your right winger, Mr. Taylor? Rockwell? I think if we're going with this system. I'm going to put Landon Donovan out wide. Same, same. Yeah, I mean, and it probably goes back to 2002 again, where he caused massive problems for Portugal down that yeah. right hand side. But then he scores uh, against uh, Poland in the game that didn't really matter. Didn't he, ma- didn't he play as like second striker in a lot of the 2002 World Cup uh, like, against, under, uh, underneath McBride? Yeah, against Poland, he definitely did. That's okay. how he ends up getting the goal. But for the the Portugal game, I always think of that like the fluke goal that deflects in when he's oh, out yes, on the right yes. wing. That's definitely from uh, the right. Yeah, that stands out in my mind. And then the goal against Mexico in the quarterfinal, he gets the second one that definitely means we're advancing. He invents Dossacero. He does. That's the goal that makes it 2-0. That's, there we go. That's <laughs> all the more reason. But then obviously scoring the goal against Algeria, uh, which I've seen like listed multiple times as like a bunch of other people got assists for that goal. I'm not quite sure how that works because it's a saved Dempsey shot that Donovan comes through and smashes home. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to say he creates all of that with an assist from Tim Howard. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, he receives the ball wide on the right yeah. and then drives at the uh, Algerian defense, mm-hmm. right? And gives it up maybe someone else in between, yeah. but gives it to, eventually to Dempsey and then he's got the rebound. Yeah. yeah. And just for that moment, he has to make this 11, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It, he's an interesting figure in the modern era, though, because of kind of what happened in the latter stages of his career, both with the national team and at club level, because... Taking the year off. And all yeah, that. But yeah. The, and then not uh, being chosen for the 2014 World Cup. And then for all of the initial conversations about how he failed in Europe and he couldn't really make the breakthrough, both with Bayer Leverkusen and with Bayern Munich, then he has the double successful stint with Everton, which sort of... Both short, but both pretty good. Exactly. Right? And so it kind of alleviates that, but then... And the national team thing is weird. Uh, shilling for Mexico was not my favorite thing. Uh, and, <laughs> not hold that against him. I'm not going to. I will say this, since we're talking about Landon Donovan. Have I told you my theory about why Jurgen Klinsmann dropped him? Because I'm kind no. of convinced that this is true. Please tell me. It's that so Jurgen Klinsmann was the manager of Bayern Munich when Landon Donovan was brought over. Yeah. And I have heard previously that like Klinsmann essentially thought like this is going to be the next big thing. Donovan's going to come in. He's going to light this team up. He's going to be this kind of like uh, undiscovered jewel that I'm going to bring in and everyone's going to see me as a genius. And then when Donovan more or less fails, it then reflects poorly on Klinsmann. And I, I have heard the argument and I do kind of believe that Klinsmann holds that sour grape, keeps that in his mind that like this was the kid who I thought was going to do it. And instead, maybe he wasn't up for it. Maybe he didn't want to push himself. Maybe he just couldn't rise to that occasion. Right. Holds on to that one. Maybe that's why we see Jonathan Klinsmann write negative tweets that seem kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. And maybe that's why we see him not included at a time when Jurgen Klinsmann has this opportunity to call together this kind of pivotal roster. He leaves Donovan on the outside. Well, here's the great thing. Even with a 2014 World Cup appearance, missing it's still an incredible national team career right and I would argue Donovan's national team career is so good that it even for me outweighs the 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 lack of success in Europe Mm -hmm. like you you can we can look at him and we can say okay he was great in major league soccer um didn't have any sustained success in Europe but his performances in terms of like pivotal moments and big moments and you know like iconic moments for the national team is so strong that I'm quite comfortable talking about him as the best U.S. men's national team player of all time, okay. even without the success in Europe, because of what he did for the national team. Right. So the Algeria goal, which, again, we, we mention it a lot, but it is one of the moments. There, there are people who are soccer fans today because of that moment, right? In that same World Cup, there's the Slovenia goal. You yes, know what I'm talking is. about? The, the, the head smash. Yes, yeah. I think I want to say it was the first goal in the comeback because we were 2 0 down. It's like, it was his goal and then Bradley, and oh, then Maurice Adu somehow gets his disallowed. Yes, so nonsense. He's like in on the diagonal and has the technique and the, I want to say bravery, yeah, to smash it near post mm-hmm. at, the, at the Slovenian goalkeeper. It's an incredible goal. It, it is, and, and it rounds out, like, I think what we're getting at is that. 
like Clint Dempsey is the other nominee, I think, for like best American player of all time. And yeah. I might err on the side of Deuce, but I would say that you could make a compelling argument that Donovan has four of the most critical, like most famous goals for the United States in yeah. World Cup history. Eight years apart. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've got the Slovenia goal that we've already talked about, Algeria, Portugal scoring that goal, which. Again, not necessarily what he meant to do. I'm not even sure he get, he doesn't get the credit for it, but still. I mean, he thought, I'm going to cross this ball and someone will put it in. Obviously. And then, <laughs> and then he just ended up doing it himself off the back of a Portuguese player. Uh, and then the goal against Mexico. So like four that created Dos Acero. So you've got like four iconic goals for a player over the course of three World Cups that mm-hmm. could have been four. Yes, it's Landon Donovan at right wing for me. And the final thing I want to talk about with Donovan. Do you have him there too or do you have somebody else? I have him at right wing okay. as well. And I have him because we, we struggled to pick a position for him, right? The mm. US as a whole struggled to pick a position for him. But the yeah, time I, I did have him in, in three different positions right? when I had my 3 4 one 2 we never really knew, knew where to play him except for the Bob Bradley era. Mm-hmm. Bob Bradley really figured out with the sort of two defensive-ish midfielders and then Donovan and Dempsey starting as wingers but coming in field. Like, he, he was saying the other day that people should have called it a 4 2 2 2 right? Because mm-hmm. they're attacking midfielders and wingers and we would play on the counter. So when Donovan had space to run at people on the counter, he was just incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Yeah. So that's why, even though we're not playing the Bradley formation, the idea of Donovan starting on the wing and cutting inside, I think is where I like him the most. All right. And yeah. then who do you like on the other wing? Unless, do you want to talk other candidates to play right wing, or was it pretty much just Donovan with a bullet? I mean, it was Donovan with a bullet for me. It was always going to be Donovan, uh-huh. but there's, you've got to give a shout out to Kobe Jones. Yeah. I've heard a lot of the players from like 94 say, and 98 and 2002 say, we knew we'd just give it wide to Kobe, a cross mm-hmm. was coming in. Yeah. So there's, I mean, that's a great, a great trait uh, in a winger, right? Mm-hmm. And no other real, I mean, the other one you could maybe make an argument for is someone like Christian Pulisic, but still so early in his yep. career and honestly hasn't had a big moment for the US just yet. And then Sergio Dest, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kobe Jones is, is funny for me because the Galaxy were that sort of rival team to DC United and you had Cienfuegos in there and then you had Kobe Jones was the other key fa- play- player for the Galaxy in that run. And so I remember liking Kobe Jones and like thinking like, oh, what a cool guy and simultaneously being like, but I don't like him. I don't want to have the ball. I don't, I don't appreciate this. So that's kind of where I think I've this like, I was trying to figure out why do I have a slight little bit of like negativity towards Kobe Jones and yeah. it really is just because he played for the Galaxy at a time when I was obsessed with DC United. I have a little bit of positivity for, for me he's the the other John Harks because mm. he's the second American player I remember because he came and played for Coventry City yeah. um, in well, I want to say mid 90s but it was a pretty brief pretty brief stay. So in terms of like your memorableness timeline if it's Harks Jones where is Lawless? Because Lawless would have been 94, right? Yeah, so Harks would have been first. Uh-huh. I, I particularly remember watching the League Cup yeah. final, and he was playing in that League Cup final that they won, Sheffield Wednesday, when they beat United. Um, I can't, I, I'm assuming Jones came to the Premier League after the 94 World Cup, so I'm going to guess it goes Harks, then Lallis and that whole 94 mm-hmm. team, but Lallis is the face that stands yep. out. And then probably Jones is the player I know after the World Cup, yeah. That checks out. Yeah. That checks out. All right, what about left wing for you? Left wing, I think by the same token as like liking that Bradley system and having Donovan on the right, I think this is the place to put Clint Dempsey, right? Okay. Even though it's not his favoured position, if I'm going with a 4-3-3, I'm having Clint Dempsey on the left wing. And again, not his best position, but Dempsey has to be in the US all time. He does. He so, does. So let's talk Clint Dempsey. Let's do it. Uh, I had him as my second striker, my like other creative playmaker. Okay. But if we're going with the wide attack, I think he's equally capable yeah. of doing that because he had to be adaptable. He was a player who, if you look at both his national team tenure and his Premier League tenure, adjusted to what was needed. And mm-hmm. it's why he became such an indispensable part of that Fulham team that makes the run in the Europa League because he adjusts to what Roy Hodgson asks of him. He can play a number of different spots and a number of different scenarios. And I think that's reflected 
reflected in the United States. He did the again the Ronaldo thing of slowly migrating towards being a center forward, and uh-huh. we tend to think of him as this like out and out forward who's just going to score goals. But go back going back to younger Clint Dempsey in 2006 when he is making runs off the ball, he's scoring goals against Ghana. He scores in three different World Cups because 2010 we're still counting as a goal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Rob Green. But honestly, like I so I rewatched that goal mm-hmm. for this, and everybody remembers it as the Rob Green mistake because it is a Rob Green mistake, yeah. right? But it involves Clint Dempsey, what, 20-something yards from goal? He's definitely way outside the area, um, doing a couple of moves mm-hmm. to spin and spin and shake off Steven Gerrard yep. and crack a shot from distance. It's not a great shot because it's right down. It should be right down the throat of Robert Green, but mm-hmm. Rob Green makes that, makes that mistake and let it go under him. But to me, that's everything that Dempsey was about, right? The fact that he was willing to and had the talent to shake off Gerrard at the top of the box and get a shot away. That's the he swagger. Tries stuff, man. He, he tries, tries stuff. stuff. That's it, right? That's the swagger and the attitude that Clint Dempsey brings. Yep. And honestly, in the like maybe in the nineties, the players had like feistiness about them. In the two thousands, we didn't have another player with the swagger no. of Clint Dempsey. No, I he mean, gave and, the team some sort of identity. Yeah, and I would and I would say for me that stands out in terms of his club career that he is the first player outside of a goalkeeper that I remember sort of going to look at the box scores from games that happened in the Premier League when he was with Fulham and expecting him to at the very least be in the starting eleven. Yeah, and then there was a point where it was like I bet he scores this weekend, and he did, and he was the first American player that I remember remember as being this like regular starter, regular goal scorer. Moves to Tottenham. His Tottenham like like career is more successful than I think people remember. Yeah, it's just shrouded by the fact that he then moves to Seattle at a time when we were all like, "Oh, Tottenham are on the verge of breaking out." It took them a little bit longer, but yeah. like we we I think there was this expectation that like, "Oh, he's moved up to that next level tier. He's gonna make it." And then it was kind disappointing, of, right? Same thing as Michael Bradley moves to Roma. We think maybe he's gonna do it. Maybe he's gonna break through. And then they both move back to Major League Soccer, and it changes that perspective a little bit. But still worth remembering how successful he was in the Premier League and how good he was so consistently. I want to talk a little more about attitude. Sure. Because there's Deuce Face. Oh, yeah. Which everybody remembers. I think it was against Jamaica, right? When he really gets in someone's face and does the um, waving his head around. Deuce Face became a moment, Mm -hmm. right? And then there's the possible deliberate penalty miss against Mexico at the end of World Cup qualifying. I would never believe that that was deliberate, but yes. But let's say that it was, Uh because it was Dos Acero at the time. Donovan, by the way, had scored the second goal. Mm -hmm. So there's an argument for him. Maybe should have gone to that World Cup. (laughs) Because that that was the Mm -hmm. goal that secured qualification. Dempsey, I think, misses to make it, to keep it 2-0 in Columbus. <laughs> that is an example of, I think, you want to, it to be the case. All right, put it this it. way then. Um, if any player would have had the swagger to do it, it would have been Clint Dempsey. See, I, I don't... I don't dis- want to argue about whether he did it or not, but I think uh, well, if any player would have done it, it would have been him. I disagree with you, and but the reason why is part of the reason why I like Clint Dempsey so much is like there were the stories about how like tumultuous things were under Klinsman and how Michael Bradley wanted to have a conversation with Clint Dempsey about like how things were, and I think his response was... Like, I wouldn't have this conversation about your dad. I won't have this conversation now. With you about your dad, I won't have this conversation with you now. Yeah. All I want to do is what, score goals and fish? Yeah. Like, he didn't seem like a guy who was really, like, tactically planning, like, ooh, I want to keep this streak going. I think he was like, no, nah, I want to score goals, and then I want to go home and fish. No, but what if it's like, I want to I want to just make this miserable for Mexico and then go home and fish? I mean, that's possible. I'm just saying, I think Clint Dempsey, in my mind, was this competitor who wanted to score, who wanted to win. And so in that my, my mind, I think he wants to score that goal. And maybe he's okay it's with weird. It's weird. I agree with you that he is like super competitive, mm-hmm. but that's the reason I think he wants it to be Dasa Zero. No. You know what I mean? Right, we'll have to agree to disagree. But um, I think we will. 
But um, that moment did happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other shouts for left wing? There's obviously Demarcus Beasley, yeah. but we've already sort of nominated him for left back, right? So Demarcus Beasley's potential left winger. I don't really have anyone else that really stands out on the left wing. No, nor do I. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there probably is someone in, that we're going to get emails about but it. Maybe Ernie Stewart could be deployed out wide because yeah. I'm not going to put him as my central central striker. But he was my if I had gone with the three four one two, he yeah. was going to be my third option if Dempsey and Donovan were no longer uh, options. Then it would have okay. been Ernie Stewart as my like secondary striker. We got at least we got a mention in for Ernie, yeah. Ernie Stewart, there. and also maybe a little bit more soured by the situation currently with Ernie Stewart. You don't know. Again, this could be the future. Ernie Stewart could have could, could have be. turned the entire thing around. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, center forward. Let's choose a center forward. Taylor, why have you chosen Brian McBride? Because it's Brian McBride. <laughs> why is it That's Brian why. McBride? I mean, if we had done the draft, he was my number one pick because... Really? Oh, yeah. Because there's no one else who can do what he can do? That's the reason. Okay. There are other people you could put in there and make arguments for. Eric Winalda would probably be the other prime candidate to be the number nine in this system. Yeah. But Brian McBride, I mean... From top to bottom, from start to finish, like he he kind of did it all. He, I mean, obviously, again, when when we're talking about Americans, we're not having the same conversation as we would about say Brazilians, where it's like he won eight Champions Leagues, yeah. not quite the same. But for McBride to go and have the success he had abroad, we always point to Fulham's bar being named after him. That's how beloved he was and how involved he was in that club and their great escape. Uh, but then the goals he scores for the United States, the kind of iconic figure he is, and the moments he has, the bleeding from the face in 2006, the celebration after the dive header uh, against uh, Portugal. Mm-hmm. The I cannot explain what was it that is. Three 0 goal. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but then the in 2002 for people who yeah. uh, you know maybe not as familiar with U.S. history. His goal against Mexico though in the 2002 uh, 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 round of 16 game is the one that I I, I don't know why I love it the so much. The one that Josh Wolf lays back. Yes. Yeah. And he does this weird like like this stra- this strange like almost like swimming approach to it where it's just very casual, but it's building up to just unleashing a crushed like rocket into the back of the net uh-huh. but just the way he very casually just approaches it and then just swings through and puts so much power behind it but it's just the setup I cannot describe it you have to watch <laughs> it and you'll know what I'm talking about but it's just this very like lazy step up and swing through and just smashes it home it was like speaks to the confidence and calmness in front of goal that we haven't always seen from US strikers but Brian McBride certainly had Oh, okay. Here's one weird case I would make for him. Um, even though you've just described two great goals he scored at a World Cup, mm-hmm. um, he actually doesn't have an incredible goal-scoring record, right? I think for the US, it's like just a little less than one in three. Mm-hmm. And for Fulham, it's like one in four or five. Um, but what, what I think that actually speaks to is not that he was a bad striker. It was the when I said at the start, like he does something that no one else can do. It's to be the target man, the hold up man, the guy you can like play the long ball into and he will either win the header or take it on his chest and bring it down. There was a lot of like that. You mentioned him being like a warrior, right? I think that's the big thing. We haven't had a center forward, maybe not before or since, who is just like a big guy who will win as many balls as possible and be just worth playing a long ball mm-hmm. to. Yeah. And, and I think could, like, the other nominee for to that... To a would, Premier League level. Yeah. yeah. The other nominee for that title would maybe be Josie Altidore, but Josie Altidore, we know... It's that, not the same fighting spirit, is it? No, because right? we know the Premier League record is not the same, and then we know the injury history is not the same. You don't yes. have that sort of consistency. And... It's probably unfair, but I think with with McBride, because there are those moments when he is visibly injured and bleeding and still trying to find a way to play, you juxtapose that with Josie Altidore where there's like – it's a hamstring issue. It's a quad injury. Now it's a calf injury. Yeah. Like it's it's unfair, 
I'm saying that straight up, but it is the case that then you have this idea of like, oh, he's a warrior who will battle through and play no matter what. Uh-huh. And then he, Josie Altador is more like Daniel Sturridge who wants to be 100% fit before <laughs> he's going to play. I don't think that's really the case with Josie Altador, but when you're looking at those two, I think that is one of the degrees of separation for me. Yeah, no, I think all Altador's injuries are genuine. Yep. There's, there's just a lot of them, especially mm-hmm. around national team duty, and it's really, really unfortunate. Yeah. But he is, actually, if you look at the charts and you agree that maybe Donovan and Dempsey aren't actual center forwards, which they're not really, they're like attacking midfielders slash second strikers. Altador is the top scoring center forward in US history. Yeah. I mean, right? that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. But we, but instead we talk about McBride, right? Well, I mean, part of that is like, like you go back to the World Cup of 2014 in qualifying. Like, I think Josie Altador was still near the top for goals scored in qualification. Yeah. But if you look at the hex, I think maybe he only has like one or two. Maybe he doesn't score at all in the hex, whereas most of his goals are in that initial round where he gets like eight against right. like Grenada or, or Barbados or whatever. And it's yeah. sort of like that factors into it a little bit for me with Josie Altador. And I do think. Compared to Dempsey and Bradley going back to Major League Soccer, I do think that like you go and see him in 2010, Josie Altador, and he's this physical striker that is knocking people out of the way. Even in the lead-up to the goal for uh, uh, Donovan against uh, Algeria, it's Altador who plays the ball in for Clint Dempsey that Dempsey's able to get a foot to and, and produces that save. But he's kind of this like battering ram. Oh, that was then, the missing link when I was trying to describe the goal yeah, earlier. Yeah. But he's like this battering ram who has the technical ability in that moment. And I think about him in years later, and we miss him in 2014 due to injury, and then we don't make 2018 World Cup. But you don't have that same level of faith in like Josie Altador is going to battle through and score a goal as you it's did in 2010 te- or 2009 Confederations Cup. It's more technique than battering ram, yeah. right? As yeah. Later in his career. Yeah. It'd be interesting to look back on his career like in a few years when mm-hmm. it's over and see where he ranks in terms of these um, all-time 11 type things. Um, I do want to mention Eric Winalda because sure. he was genuinely I was, I'd have trouble choosing between McBride and Winalda and if we'd done the draft I would have been comfortable with you taking McBride because I feel good about having Eric Winalda mm-hmm. um, up there. He is not as big as McBride or Altador but he is essentially a pest. If, you, if you're a centre-back and you're playing the US national team, Eric Winalda would just be after you all the time. Yep. And I watched, I watched footage of like the 94 team and the 95 team that went to the Copa America and made the semifinals. Um, there was a lot of just playing hopeful balls into channels or just hitting long clearances and then just having faith that Eric Winalda would run after it mm-hmm. and run it down. Yep. So it was a lot of just, he was just willing to put in maximum effort, to quote Deadpool, but actual maximum effort, yeah. and just run things down and make things happen and annoy defenders. Yeah. And there is, there is genuinely a striker who's willing to do that for 90 plus minutes. There's a value to that, and it kind of represents what US soccer was about during the 90s. Yeah, I mean, that again, that 94 team, I think in a lot of ways, lays the foundation for the way US teams are perceived in World Cups after that. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be hard work. You're never really going to be able to be comfortable because they're always going to keep being uh, passed and they're yeah. going to keep challenging. And they're like, going to outrun you. Yeah, and Ronaldo's a great example of so often we think of forwards as like hating those sort of long ball this way, long ball that way, because it's just a bunch of thankless running. Yeah. You don't have a lot of support around you. Winalda, happy to put in that effort because he wanted to battle. He wanted to fight. He wanted to score. You could tell he was the type of forward. We've had a few for the U.S. uh, in like the last 20 years who I've, I, w- I would argue like didn't quite have that killer instinct that like I will murder someone to score a goal. Eric Winaldo would m- murder several people to score a goal <laughs> is, is my feeling from at least that 94 era for sure. Um, also, like we've mentioned just his like, essentially determination mm-hmm. and his willingness to chase things and annoy centre-backs. He could hit a ball. He could hit a ball. Like he's maybe, he's not slow, but he's not mm-hmm. super fast either, right? He was not like my, teenage Michael Owen fast. Uh, but he really did have like a good nose for goal and... Could, could strike a football, basically. I think the best example of it is the 1994 yep. World Cup. The first game, U.S. is hosting, I want to say it's in Michigan at the Silverdome. Mm-hmm. Um, 
He hits that free kick against Switzerland, and it is, the English would say, top bins. Yep. <laughs> it goes in the top left corner. It's an important moment in US soccer history. If you lose that opening game, 94 hosting the World Cup could have been something of a disaster. It could have been. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't. And uh, Winalda then, I think, plays in three World Cups, uh, gets that goal against Switzerland. I would say, though, like, it's, it's strange that Did we talk— Did he go to the 2002 World Cup? Uh, I think 1994. Oh, 90. I forgot mm-hmm. he went to 90. Yep. yep, yep. yep. Uh, but it's it's interesting because I think his goal scoring record is something like 34 in 100 and something, yeah. which again is one, one every three games. Yeah. So that seems to be about par for the course for US strikers. Yeah, but I think you've also you've got to forgive one out of the stats a little bit because he's playing for that team in 1990 World Cup that you know wasn't particularly good. McBride had a decent US team for his whole career. I will forgive nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One other thing in Winalda's favor, he prevented the first ever MLS game, the inaugural MLS game. Mm -hmm. He prevented it from being goalless by scoring a late goal for San Jose against, I want to say, DC. That's right. First goal in MLS history right there. (laughs) Not bad, not bad. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Have we nominated everyone we're going to nominate? I think so. Yeah? I think we have. Okay. I'm looking through my notes. Yeah, about. Okay, now the tough part. Mm -hmm. We're going to try and synthesize this into an 11. We can try. I'm not sure we're going to get there, but let's see. So we went back. Our two choices of a goalkeeper were Howard Mm -hmm. and Friedel. I am willing to be swayed into Howard, not least because it's not Tim Howard's fault that he kept making himself available. Mm -hmm. Brad Friedel did choose to prolong his career and stay out of a fight with Casey Keller by just quitting international football. Yes. So I'm going to, I would happily give it to Howard for that reason. All right. That works for me. So Howard is a goalkeeper. All right. Um, centre-backs, we both went Pope and Lallas. We did. I am shocked that we were so easily able to do that. Um, Left-back, you went DMB. Yeah. And I went Caligiuri. Mm-hmm. Um, I would accept that I chose Caligiuri more for something he did when he was playing midfield. Um, and that DeMarcus Beasley just has the longer and better career. So right. I'm willing to go Beasley. <laughs> all right. I'm actually willing to fold on a lot of things because I'm just, I love all these players. So it's fine. <laughs> um, Chundalo and Hux is a little tougher because I don't think we have room for Hux in midfield. And I think Hux is actually a better player. But Chundalo played a load of games at right back for the US and Hux didn't. All right. So I, don't, we, I honestly we, don't know. Oh, maybe we should just make Hux our number 12. <laughs> like, like he subs in wherever we need him. Do you know what? There's the um, the Eric Winalda's wife thing uh-huh. has to count against you. I think so. so. He's such a great player and mm-hmm. such a trailblazer with playing in England, first player to play in the Premier League. But he did that thing. But so for that, that reason, he's in the squad, but he's on the bench. Mm-hmm. And Chiron- Dolo is the right back. All right. Okay. I'm good with that. This is where we then, I think, run into some obstacles because there are so many options in central midfield, not even yeah. including John Harks. That, well, who, uh, who did we agree on? I had uh, we, who did we agree on was basically just Tab Ramos. So you have I, who is so almost have, the one that I'm most capable of losing of my <laughs> three because I had Tab Ramos, John O'Brien, Claudio Reyna. I had Thomas Dooley, Tab Ramos, and Hugo Perez. Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, I'd happily go Ramos, Ramos, Reyna, O'Brien. I see. Actually, I think I could go. I could. I love John O'Brien, but it is that 2002 tournament, and pretty much just that. He's involved in 2006, but we've talked about why that isn't the best memory. Mm-hmm. Whereas Thomas Dooley, I think you could make that argument, is a like long-term player of uh, particular importance for the United States yeah. and everything he represented for both club and country. Yeah. I would also be okay with having a midfield of Thomas Dooley with Tab Ramos and Claudia Reyna ahead of him. That sounds good to me. I'm good with that. Yeah. I'll, right. I'll make one extra argument for Dooley. But I still love John O'Brien. John O'Brien, I love you. <laughs> Maybe he can be on the bench and we'll just give him a fitness check. That's before, before that, he that's fine. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Um, so it's Dooley, Ramos, Reyna. Mm-hmm. One extra thing I read about Dooley was because he joined that team in 94 and it was a lot of guys who'd only played college and then taken one of those US soccer contracts, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And just played for the US, basically. When Dooley came in, apparently he brought an air of 
professionalism because yeah. he was the guy that had played in the Bundesliga. So he really did like come in as a 31-year-old like pro soccer player. Just brings an air of professionalism to the He's US seen in 94. some things. So Dooley, Ramos, Reynas, mm-hmm. midfield. And I think we agreed on the strikers, right? Donovan on the right, Dempsey on the left, McBride's bar up front. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were going to try to push for Winalda there. But uh, yeah, I would, I would say that front three for I sure. I think, I mean, I love Winalda's like running and his efforts and all that. Mm-hmm. But if you're playing a single striker yep. um, for hold-up play and all that kind of stuff, it's got to be Brian McBride, right? Agreeance. All right. So front to back, it's Friedling goal. Chirundolo at right back. Howard and goal. Oh, wow. I'm reading my own paper. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I see what you've done. You're trying to sneak that past. Calgary at left back. And I said front to back. Back to front. <laughs> it's Tim Howard in goal. Uh-huh. It's Chirundolo at right back. It is. It's Eddie Pope and Alexi Lalas um, at centre back. It is uh, Demarcus Beasley mm-hmm. at left back, which Woo-hoo. is a thing I never thought I would say in the run up to the 2014 World Cup because we mm-hmm. were super worried about it. We were it, worried. Right? Um, Thomas Dooley holding midfield, controlling the game. Yep. Ramos and Reina um, providing beautiful technical skills in central midfield. It's like two eight slash tens, right? Yep. Um, Landon Donovan on the right, Clint Dempsey on the left. I'm going to say they take turns cutting in and maybe coming underneath Brian McBride, the centre forward. I'm good with that plan. All right. I like that plan immensely. Um, one, one question I did want to ask you. I think we've kind of already answered it, but if you had to bet right now, if we did this same show. 10 years from now, let's say, who from the current iteration in 2019, which players or player do you think is most likely to supplant somebody on this list? Because the, the logical answer would be Christian Pulisic. Yeah, but, but then it's you're Donovan looking, and Dempsey. It's Donovan right? and Dempsey I think, we'd, I think we'd move things around, right? And like, we'd end up with a two-striker system with Donovan underneath someone or Dempsey underneath mm-hmm. someone and Pulisic on one of the wings. That makes sense to me. The other one I would, I think you could make a, a fairly compelling argument for, maybe Weston McKinney, but the one I would probably put a lot of stock in is uh, Tyler Adams. I hesitate because he's still coming back from an injury at time of recording, and like there's still maybe that fear of, like, oh, is he going to be another like injury-prone? Yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. see as much of him. But for where he is right now at his age in terms of playing for a club that are challenging for the Bundesliga title, we would expect to be regularly competing in the Champions League going forward, and I think will be a key part of the national team going forward. Yeah. I think he's the other one who I could see becoming a sort of key cog in the all-time U.S. 11. I think, yeah, I think that's a good shout. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is we don't have anyone from like 1930 Mm-mm. or 1950. There are, there'll be a lot of people who will say you should have included Gajans yeah. for scoring against England in 1950. Right. But the thing is, that's all, we were, that's all we know about him, right? We don't know what type of player he was. There's just no footage to like really take a look at Gajans and say he was about this or he was about that. Yeah, and, and to be honest, like that stuff to me almost feels disingenuous because you're, you're essentially talking about a player who you've never really seen. You've seen like little clips of at best, yeah. and you're taking a lot of oral history and word of mouth into consideration when you're talking about that player. And so to then be like, he was amazing on the ball. He could do this. He could see that. Like You don't really know that. You've been told that and yeah. internalized that, and then you're saying that for yourself. Whereas, so hopefully I just saved us a few emails. I think so. I hope so. But, but that is <laughs> the case for me and i will add like as we go forward with soccer 101 i am not as much as i would like to be i am not the type of person who goes back and watches like games from the 82 world cup just to see what happened and what the tactical trends were so like that is also the the reason why i think i don't have some of the older players in there is because that's not really my inclination to go back and watch a bunch of like classic matches and have yeah. that influence my thinking but we will do that on soccer 101 maybe for some classic u.s games maybe, maybe for some maybe, classic maybe. european games maybe maybe right? maybe maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I love promising things that we might not be able to do there you go <laughs>
All right, I am ready to wrap up. I feel good about our 11. I thought I'd have some concerns. I feel really good about this. I think Thomas Dooley as a number six was, was the key there for me. I think that brought really? it all together because I, I f- fully expected you to have him as one of your center backs. I and see. that would have been some adjusting because I'm not sure who we would have gone with. Well, there that's before, what that so genuinely, the most effort for me was finding footage of defenders. Mm-hmm. So being able to find enough game footage where I could watch Eddie Pope in action and I could watch Alexi Lalas in action and get a read, get a feel for the type of players they were made me a lot more confident about choosing them as my centre-backs and then everything falls into place for me um, after that. There we are. All right, so we are done. We are done. I've been Daryl Grove. I've been Taylor Rockwell. Thank you for listening to Soccer 101. (laughs) 